Would you take your Bibles, God's pure, inerrant, powerful, authoritative, and holy word, and open it to Romans chapter 3, where today we will be looking at verses 21 to 26. Some ways for those of us who have been walking through uh, Romans together for about four months, three and a half months now, this is an exciting day because we who have been shown to thoroughly deserve damnation for our sin against God, are now going to hear of how we can be pardoned of that sin. Paul is going to pick up a thought he introduced back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and now begin to unpack that in full, having laid out the background for it that he did. So, Just to perhaps help you, if you, and you'll see it on the screen, if you put verse 17 of chapter 1 and verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3 together, side by side, you can compare and see how much he is carrying over the thought. In 117, he called it the gospel, in the gospel. Now in 3, he speaks of it as apart from the law. Both sentences have the righteousness of God as the dominating subject. Both of them are saying it's being revealed or being made known. And then in 117, it spoke of a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And in 322, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So, same thought, now picking up where he left off and... The whole focus of the letter really swings on the first two words of chapter, or verse 21 in chapter 3. So don't skim past those too quickly. Many times in scripture we think of the phrase, but God. So Josh in the tank today referenced Ephesians 2. And in that section there is the but God. Here it's but now because he is emphasizing a point in time, a a change in a pivotal moment in history, the inaugurating of something that's drastically different than what he's been talking about for two chapters. And I love this text because now and moving forward in Romans 3 and 4 and 5, we get the emphasis on what God has done and is doing, not what we have done. It's what God has done in spite of what we have done. And it's what God has done because of what we have done that's described in Romans here. So in this new section, we're moving from very bad news to very, 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 very good news. From an ugly side of the character of man and our sinfulness to the glorious, beautiful, righteous character of God from our sin to what is involved in our salvation, from what is wrong with us, the diagnosis to the cure. God is going to now emphasize heavily his righteousness. He's going to emphasize justification, grace in these coming uh, few next Sundays, faith, and just the repeated, repeated uses of those. So you can kind of see by how different people titled this paragraph or section of Romans, how that emphasis shift happens. So Andy Nacelli said, 
the righteousness of God rightly righteouses, making up his own word, but fitting the theme, the unrighteous. Tom Schreiner, God's righteousness in the death of Jesus. Kent Hughes, the miracle of righteousness. All of these standing in stark contrast to what we've been in for so long in Romans 2 and 3. And then my title, the, Oh, the Grace of God's Justification by Christ's Propitiation. Now, the gospel can be explained in a lot of ways. Many glorious reflections of light through the prism of the gospel. What we're looking at here is just one. But it's an incredible one. Some of the statements made by pretty reasonable, renowned men about this one paragraph are pretty remarkable. Here's a few of them. Possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Martin Luther, take heed to what's here. It is central in the most important passage of the epistle and indeed the entire scripture, even though he goes back to 116 and 117 as the verses that really brought him to saving faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in all life, in all of history, there's nothing more important than these teachings. John Calvin, there's probably no passage in the whole Bible of greater significance as regards the justifying righteousness of God. Kent Hughes, make sure I'm saying the right person, I'm not. Martin Lloyd-Jones, nope, James Boyce. James Boyce preached eight sermons on this passage, this paragraph. And when it's transcribed into his commentary or his sermon notes, it comes out to 65 pages. So there's a lot that can be said. But I appreciate Doug Moo's maybe more tempered uh, pronouncement about this passage. Here's what he says. There are so many other great paragraphs that could vie for the title of Central Place in the Bible. But the paragraph is extraordinarily important. So many important theological ideas. And then he lists about nine or ten of them, which we're all going to touch on this morning. The only one that isn't explicitly in there is the forgiveness, but it's certainly in the concept of propitiation. And then he draws his line here more than anywhere else in Romans. Paul explains why Christ's coming means good news for needy, sinful people. Can this passage live up to that billing? This sermon won't. It can't. It was a frustrating week that I couldn't preach this better. It deserves better, far better. But the text itself will. Every Tuesday, I send you an email that urges you to ponder Sunday's passage longer. I want to really double emphasize that this week to say, just keep chewing on this and chewing on it and thinking about it like chewing gum only in the jaws of your heart and your mind as you consider all these incredible, incredible what we call doctrines or truths of the faith and how they all are brought together here, overlapping with each other and being brought briefly into light. And then the rest of Romans 3 and all of Romans 4 and really into Romans 5, we're going to continue to unpack these even more incredible, amazing uh, messages that are coming up or texts that are coming up to preach from. 
Now, I found this paragraph because of all of that very challenging to break into any kind of an organized outline. So I apologize for that. It's going to be kind of an extensive one if you're wanting all the points, but they're just going to flow chronologically out of the way that God unpacks this here in Romans 3. So we're going to look at nine truths from this text, from these six verses, that teach us about the righteousness of God. That phrase shows up four times in this paragraph, along with about four or five references to faith and believing. And so God is just going to roll out. But I'm going to assert that every thought that's unpacked here is unpacking something about the righteousness of God. So we're not going to take time to read each of these. I just want you to know that's what's coming. About two to three minutes on each one is all we can spend if we're going to work our way through and try and get all of this thought at one time. But let's begin by reading together, you following as I read aloud this powerful, beautiful passage and ask God to begin even in the reading but then in our study to illuminate it in ways that we've never seen before that will strike us afresh with wonder and worship. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Heavenly Father, what you show us today in this paragraph is stunning, amazing, beautiful, and precious to us. Thank you for revealing these things that are otherwise hidden from our human eyes. And I pray that you will now take our bare understanding of them and low, not nearly enough appreciation for them and grow them, and expand them, and illuminate them, and enliven them to our hearts and minds. Forgive us for taking your salvation so for granted, being so ho-hum about things that are so phenomenal. Use our time today feeding on your life-giving words to awaken our awe and our affections. We pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Truth number one, this text teaches us about the righteousness of God. And that is the righteousness of God has been manifested in Christ Jesus. Um, and I, this one, this wording lines up almost exactly. But now the righteousness of God, not man's unrighteousness. So this is just as stark of a contrast as you can get to 
the righteousness of man, the righteousness of God that is pure, that is without sin, without defect, without flaw. And it's a righteousness around, if you go back to 117, the righteousness without which none of us could be saved. And it's been manifested, revealed, shown, NIV, made known, Apart from the law, first of all, he's going to emphasize a couple of things about the manifesting. The first is that it's apart from the law. In other words, not through the law, even though the law expresses the righteousness of God in one way, not out of the law after we try to obey the law, but in a different way than the law. It's ultimately, we're going to find out, manifested in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. As Hughes says, Jesus is the radical righteousness of God. It might be helpful in your reading of this if you would put apart from the law right up next to the righteousness of God. So we're not taking out any ideas. Just read it this way. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law, because it's going to be from grace, apart from the law has been manifested. Another way we could say it is, if you want to take the language from 117, we could say, but now the righteousness of God in the gospel has been manifested. So, manifested in Christ's coming, his incarnation, his life, his death, his ascending back to heaven. But also manifested really throughout the Old Testament scriptures. This manifestation of the righteousness of God does not come out of the blue, but has been talked about over and over and over. The word although, perhaps, uh, it's the ESV's rendering of this, other translations say here that might be more helpful, to which the law and the prophets bear witness. Um, in other words, it's been spoken of throughout the Old Testament. The law and the prophets is a way to often refer to the whole Old Testament scriptures and the fact that they bear witness, they testify, they have affirmed this. They've been prophesying and saying that it's coming, that Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming. In other words, this isn't an emergency plan in the gospel that God has to do after we all fail at the law. This is from the beginning, using the law to show us that there is a greater righteousness of God that's going to be manifested. Since the first sin, there's been hint after hint. Since Genesis 3.15 and Christ coming with the covering for Adam and Eve after their sin. And continuing in the stories of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and the writings of David and Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Hosea and Malachi. All the way through to the end of the Old Testament. Every saint recognizing these, this manifestation, this bearing of witness believing in it by looking forward in faith to its fulfillment. One of the first things Jesus did when he rose from the dead, in fact, on the same day in Luke 24, is he appeared to two disciples and began with Moses and all the prophets, so same kind of language, and interpreted into them what an incredible message or teaching time this must have been. What a walk. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Peter says that when the Old Testament writers wrote of these things, 
They longed, they inquired and searched, what is all this gonna look like? How is it all gonna ultimately come to fulfillment? But the point is, over and over, both in the old, and now you and I get to see also in the new, everything is bearing witness to the righteousness of God being manifested in the Son of God coming and carrying out the works of God. God has planned it from the beginning and throughout, carried it out from fall to the cross and ultimately to his return. Truth number three. Sorry, I kind of blew past two without making it super clear we were transitioning there. To three, verse 22, and this is repeated in verse 25, part of this thought, and some of it in verse 26 at the end as well that it's the righteousness of God that can only be received by faith, not by works, we might add as clarification there. In other words, all those who believe in Christ, and not themselves, but in Christ and his nature and his work, that is the means by which, the instrument through which God's righteousness comes to sinful beings. In a similar book of the Bible, Galatians, that deals also with clarity about the gospel and by faith and not works, Paul wrote this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. There's gonna be the same language we see here in Romans 3. But now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. More on that to come in Romans 3 and 4. Truth number four from this text that we can see, in verse 23, the righteousness of God is offered to all who fall short, for all who sin. And he opens this with, there is no distinction. This is the same theme, the same drum that he is banging, again, that he has been since chapter one, to simply say, ultimately, we're not distinguishing in how God saves between those who are Gentiles without the law and those who are Jews with the law. The conclusion we've arrived at, and I'm going to say it one more time, and it's simply said in a slightly different way. It's one more way we can think about everything that chapter 118 through 319 was, has been, or 320 has been describing. And this, this time, God describes it as a falling short of the glory. In other words failing to meet the standard, the glory standard of God's perfect holiness. It's rejecting at the core of it God and his glory in order to search, fall short in our searching for glory in other things. God created us to glory, glorify him, and in sinning we no way do. God created us to enjoy his glory. That's the depiction of what heaven will be as well. And choosing sin and the glory of lesser things does not do that. So here is one more way that God is showing us how beautiful grace is. 
is that it takes those who have fallen short of that glory. Truth number five, from the beginning of verse 24, the righteousness of God is given in the act of justification. First of our really big words here that bear tremendous significance. Martin Lloyd-Jones said here, this is undoubtedly one of the great verses of the Bible. It is a perfect synopsis of the Christian faith, and it is important, therefore, that we should understand it clearly. Verse 24 reads, and are, or we might say can only be justified. Keyword, declared, reckoned, pronounced, designated, regarded as righteous. Having the righteousness of God applied to us. This is such a dramatic reversal from everything that's been described about us so far. God even had Isaiah use this concept 700 years before it came to fruition in Christ when he was prophesying about the suffering servant. And he says, the righteous, so notice the emphasis on that, the righteous one, that's Christ, my servant, shall make many to be accounted. So there's the same idea as what justified is, to be designated, declared, reckoned, seen as righteous. And then Isaiah goes on to tell us how that's able to be, because he takes and bears the iniquities of those. So some of us have, at least I remember hearing lots and lots as a young person, that to think of justified is to think of just as if I never sinned. And that is an accurate, partial understanding of justification. It actually includes even more. We might say in some ways, it's just half of it. For God also is saying that he sees us, he pronounces us as righteous as his son because he sees us in the righteousness of his son. So not only just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if we are perfect. It's a double dimension of glory that God does in justifying. John Piper was helpful for me in just giving some distinguishing nuances about justification. And let me start with just that first line. Justification is not an act of God that makes us righteous. Some of us might go immediately to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. So this is not a denial of that reality and that truth, but it's not what justification is saying. So going on, it's an act of God that declares, that's that key word again, us righteous. When verse 22 says that God's righteousness is through faith for all who believe, it means that this righteousness is counted as ours. God's act of justification is not inside us, but outside of us. It's not in us, but for for us. It is not a change of our nature or state, but a change of our standing before him. And then a little later, in another place, it's not an act we perform or a work we do, but a declaration God makes, a work he does toward us. And then last thought of verse 24 here. And we'll put together some of justified with the other terms in a bit. Last but not least in this thought is the 
fantastic pronouncement that all of this comes by his grace and reiterating it as a gift. And we know the textbook definition of grace only mentioned once here, but it's in the center, in the middle, and the great reminder. It is not by our works. We will never attain the righteousness of God through our works, through our obedience. We don't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. We haven't merited it in any way. And yet, and there's nothing we contribute, and yet it's given, offered to all of us as an incredible free gift. Truth number six that's unpacked here. The righteousness of God is granted through Christ's redeeming work. Through the redemption, verse 24 goes on to say, which is a payment of a set price. Or other language here in the, in the New Testament is ransom. In order to free a captive. So all those are critical. A payment, a price, and a freeing of a captive. It's liberating us from, and now we have a whole host of things. From sin, remember 3.20 told us we were all under sin. From sin's guilt, from sin's penalty, from sin's power, from sin's slavery over us, dominion over us. But it's a payment that's not made to Satan. It's not a payment that's made to sin. It's a payment that's made to God for the redemption so that he can act in the ways that he wants to justify us. Now, very quickly, just reminders, this is a much more commonly expressed theme in the New Testament and throughout the scriptures than justification. So think of Jesus' expression, even though we don't see redeemed in this, that he came in order to give his life as a ransom. There's that language. The price that's paid is his life. It's a ransom, and it's for many captives. Ephesians 1, in that glorious description of our salvation, breaks into this. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, which is going to be a theme in Romans 3 here. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And in Ephesians 1, Paul adds even more language here, which he lavished extravagantly on us in his son. And then Josh Tidd preached three Sundays ago from this passage in 1 Corinthians 1.30. But one of the four things we, Christ becomes to us is, besides our wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, is redemption. But it's also one that's throughout the Old Testament. Here are just a few reminders for you. Perhaps some have already come to mind. Job's declaration in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that at the last, he will stand upon the earth. I don't know if Job fully comprehended all that that would mean when he came to the earth the first time, all that that will mean when he comes the second time. Psalm 19, David closes that well-known, beautiful psalm with, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then the story of Boaz and Ruth, him as a kinsman redeemer that takes in the bride by grace is such a beautiful depiction of this redemption that Romans 3, 24 talks about. Then come back to Romans 3. Again, 
This is still part of point six, truth six. All of this comes, righteousness in justification comes only through that which is in Christ Jesus. So Galatians 4 unpacks it even more specifically. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and yet also outside of the law, to redeem those who were imprisoned under the law, as Romans 3 describes it to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Lord Jesus Christ did not come into the world merely to announce the way of salvation. He came to make the way of salvation, to make it possible for God to be able to justify sinners by grace. The whole gospel hangs on the word through, and it cannot be emphasized too much. Truth number seven, verse 25, the first part, the righteousness of God is possible because of Christ's sacrificial blood atonement. Trying to use some different language to help unpack some of the thoughts there in verse 25. So first thought is God put it forward. God put his son forward. The New American Standard translates put forward, displayed publicly. The New King James translates it, whom God set forth as a propitiation. NIV, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Now we come to that big P word, big long word, uh, probably haven't used it for a while, might need a little brushing up on what it entails and what it means, but it is such a rich and such a powerful and such a beautiful part, aspect of how Christ saves us. A propitiation is a sacrifice. So we saw that redemption is a payment of a set price or a ransom. A propitiation is a sacrifice. Portrayed here, we'll see by the next phrase, by his blood, in the body and blood, the death, the cross of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth that turns away the wrath of God that is rightfully against every sinner. Another way we can say it is that Jesus took our death penalty. In order to appease God, in order to stop, to turn away the divine anger against sin, and to do so with a sacrificial offering. One writer called propitiation a wrath absorber. And it's all absorbed by his blood. So much that's in that word picture. Communion is always a reminder that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of Christ's perfect blood on our behalf. So I'm told that in the Greek, what we see as propitiation here is not that common in the New Testament. I think it shows up about four or five times. The Apostle John uses it a couple of times in his first letter. But this word in the Greek shows up throughout the Old Testament if you look at the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Old Testament. And it's used some 20 times as the mercy seat. So just quick reminder, the mercy seat sat on the gold cover of the Ark of the Covenant underneath the cherubim where the mercy seat was. And once a year, 
on the day of atonement, key word with a a propitiation, on the day of atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice in order to assuage God's just anger on sin. He had to sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat in order to make atonement for the sins of God's people and turn away his wrath. So Anders Nigren says, we really could read this verse, God put forward his mercy seat to be received by grace. God put forward his son as the mercy seat. And there's, if you just stop and think about this thought, there's just so much here. Here's just a few reflections thinking about this single truth that God's righteousness requires a sacrifice. He doesn't just whimsically forgive all our sins, wipe everything away, I change my mind, it's all okay today, I'm not mad anymore. In order to have the wrath turned away, it requires a bloody sacrifice before he would do anything to help sinners. That his righteousness required that sacrifice, be righteous, be perfect, be blameless, be unstained by sin. Third, that he knew the only sacrifice that would meet that was his own, was his son. And that in light of all of that and the incredible cost of it, that he would not require one ounce of flesh from sinners in return. God redeems and God justifies sinners on the basis, one basis, Christ and his propitiatory blood. And then at the end of verse 25, and you'll see it again at the end of verse 26, and we saw it earlier in verse 22, that a reminder again, none of this is earned, none of this is merited, it's all given by, to those who come to receive it as a gift by faith. Truth number eight, truth number nine are very closely related. I'll just work through these quite quickly. Verse 25 is the eighth truth, or the end of verse 25. The righteousness of God, how all of the righteousness of God is manifested, explains his past forbearance. Um, In other words, before the cross, it could appear that God was not being true to his word, that he would punish sin that he was accepting sacrifices that he himself admitted did not fully take away sin. Was he compromising his righteousness? Was he not being truly just? But what took place on the cross that God's righteousness required it to be, if there was gonna be any justifying of any sinners, proved God to be just and righteous in all that he did. So verse 25 looks back at how it could be misconstrued as he passed over former sins until his son came and actually paid that penalty in full. And verse 26 then, truth number nine, looks at the present and that carries all the way over to us as well. And all of this is ultimately to show his righteousness that he is just 
even while he's also the justifier of those who have faith in his son. So, justified, not by just waving away a penalty, but by accepting a payment, a ransom, a mercy seat, blood in place. And the shocking twist in God's courtroom is the son gets up to go do that for the guilty. So we might summarize this thought, I think, in this way. The perfectly just, righteous judge of all justly judged his own son on the cross. So he can now, in grace, justly justify, declare pardon and innocent any and all sinners who believe and come to him in faith. Two closing things uh, as we reflect briefly on Romans 3. And again, we will, in the coming Sundays, see many more of these truths unpacked in various new and richer and deeper and beautiful ways. But two things that I hope help just solidify and enrich this paragraph to you as we've thought about it today. First of all, this visual from James Boyce. So let me start you in the lower right corner. If the sinner who comes by faith in order to be made a Christian, in order to be made Christ's follower, in order to have all of this applied to him, then Jesus Christ, when he sees the Christian coming, the sinner coming in faith, applies redemption, pays his penalty, his ransom, and frees him from sin. While also going upward on the left side, providing the propitiation, the bloody mercy seat to God the Father so that he can provide the redemption that he's providing. And God the Father simultaneously, then because of the Son's propitiation, brings justification, the pronouncement of innocent and not guilty to the Christian. Just this beautiful triangle of the working of how God brings about all that he describes here. For me, visual learner, it was a helpful way to think of all those big terms, how they're all happening and why. And then finally, the words of a song that we've sung from time to time. It's not the easiest song to sing, but for those of you that know Mike Cox, it was also a song he kept in that piano bench over there if he ever needed to pull out something in order to play. And it was the song, His Robes for Mine. Here are just the words, not even the chorus, just the four verses. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless, I stand with righteous works, not mine. Saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed and thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, tis done. Sin's wage is paid, propitiation won.
His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone on the cross. I, as though he, embraced in the courtroom and even now by the Father and welcomed home. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this paragraph that you had a man write in a jail cell or in a cave so that 2,000 years later we could stand here and be stunned by the revelation of the gospel here in Romans 3. Thank you for these truths, but God, I pray they're not just something that we know or perhaps even affirm, but that we cast, every one of us casts ourselves entirely in faith onto Jesus Christ and his propitiation for us and your justification of us by that. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you for your grace. We have nothing to offer you and nothing to give you in return. But here, take our lives and use them for your glory because of what you have done in saving us through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all praise, glory, honor, and dominion both now and forever. Amen.